Please turn in your um, Bibles with me, or your phone with me, to um, John 11. The passage I want to look at this morning is from John 11. And my, my hope is, the question I want to ask this morning is, how does Jesus meet us in the places of our lives that are dark, in the places of our lives that are deeply disappointing, in the places of our lives that are just sad? And to do that, I want to look at a story. If you grew up in the church, it's familiar, it's the death of Lazarus. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I want to read verses 1 to 6 from John 11 and then skip down and do 28 to 44. So I'm going to start John 11, 1 to 6, and then skip down. Here's what John writes. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, uh, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then skip down to 28. When she had said this, Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village and was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this in account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let me pray for us, and then I want to dive in this morning to what I want to talk about. Father, uh, we thank you that you are a God that you um, do not remain hidden. You love to reveal yourself to us. And you have uh, told us in your word that you have revealed yourself fully in the face of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that you would send your spirit this morning and that in this place, in in our hearts, in our lives, that you would make your son, the Lord Jesus, more beautiful and more believable to us this morning. That we would be not just amazed at him in the story, but we would know that he loves us in the same way that he loved his friends these many years ago. Would you do that in us? Would you do that in this place this morning? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
So a few years ago, uh, author and speaker John Acuff was in a Walmart, and he was in, he had wandered to the section of a Walmart where it's the book section. And if you've ever been in the book section of a Walmart, at least this is how it used to be when I grew up in Sumter, uh, it's this weirdly set up place where on the one hand you have all these like men's health and women's health magazines on one side, and then on the other side, all these Christian inspirational books. And he noticed something really weird. He noticed that a lot of the lines on the front covers of the men's health magazines especially were like eerily similar to the lines on the back covers of the Christian books. So he, had this, he wrote this post uh, called um, Flat Abs and Jesus. And this idea was, it was a quiz. Could you tell which line this was from? Was the line, it was like 20 lines. Was it a line from a front cover of a men's health magazine or was it a line from the back cover of a Christian book? And it was a fast, like I took the quiz and it was a really hard quiz. So one of the, like, one of the examples was secrets to effortless success. Front cover of a men's health magazine, back cover of a Christian book. Another one was 26 steps to a stress-free life. Front cover of a men's health magazine, back cover of a men's or of a Christian inspirational book. And here's what he wrote. He said this. He said, do I ever go to God with a laundry list of better demands? Give me a better marriage a better ministry, a better life, a better job, a better everything? Do I chase the blessings of God sometimes more than the presence? Do I ever treat God like a really good self-help guru that is there to meet my needs? Yes, yes, I do. And this is what he said that I love. He said, but I don't want God to simply be a new vehicle for the things I want. I want God to be what I want. I want him to be enough. And I think what's so interesting to me in this passage we're going to look at is that Jesus seems committed in my life and in your life and in the lives of his friends in this passage to a love that disappoints, to a love that refuses to let him be a, a really good self-help guru, to a love that destabilizes you, that your hope might not be in what he can do for you, but then your hope might be and my hope might be in him and who he is. So what I want to do this morning is look, just three questions I want to ask as we think, look at John 11, and they're pretty simple questions. And I, I'm, I'm doing the alliteration thing, so forgive me for that. But we're going to do, first, why does he wait? Second, why does he weep? And then lastly, why does he wake Lazarus from the dead? Why, why, why Jesus waits, why he weeps, and then lastly, why he wakes Lazarus from the dead? So first, think with me for a little bit about why he waits. And this was, if you were following the passage, this is by far the strangest part. It says in verse 6 that he loved his friends. They, these friends are more than Facebook friends with him. Jesus has been in their house. They've had these weekend parties together. Jesus has eaten Martha's home-cooked food. Jesus, Mary has been at his feet, literally rubbing them, smelling them, taking them in. He probably slept in Lazarus's bed, maybe. Uh, he knows, he, he, he loves them. He doesn't just love them, he likes them. I'll never forget my, my second year of ministry. I had an intern, and she at, we were sitting at Starbucks in Statesboro, Georgia, and she said to me, she said, see me, I know that you believe that Jesus loves you, but do you believe that Jesus likes you? And that's a question for this morning. Do you, do you, you know that you've heard, you've grown up as a Christian, you know, you've heard all your life Jesus loves you. Do you believe that he likes you, that he enjoys you? And we have to understand that Jesus enjoyed these friends, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And that's why verse 6 is so weird, because it says he loved them. He, he loved them. He liked them. He enjoyed them. Therefore, he waited. We would think it would say he loved them, and when he heard the news of Lazarus, he rushed. He saddled his, the donkey, and he rushed with his disciples down there. And that's not what it says. So the question is, why? Why did he wait? And I think it's how we started. 
that Jesus did not want his, his friends' hope to be in what he could do for them, but he wanted their hope to be in them. In other words, he loved them enough, and he loves us enough to disappoint them. Because the reality is, unless the Lord makes us wait in this way, we'll never learn to wait in him. I'll never forget being, uh, I did five years before doing RUF at South Carolina, I did five years of RUF at Georgia Southern in Statesboro, Georgia. And I remember, I think it was like my third year there, we had a large group one night, and it was one of those nights where it was a crushingly low turnout. And I mean, like half of what normally came, came. And I, my RUF friend at SCAD, we would often, he had a large group the same night, and we would call and commiserate afterwards and just say, your sermon suck again, yeah, mine too, and just like kind of cry and laugh and cry and eat bowls of cereal together but on the phone. And I remember that night saying I had this, it was like, I think it was a John Mayer Owl City concert in Atlanta and like all my students went, so I still can't listen to either of those (laughs) artists without having a broken heart a little. And I remember him saying, I remember saying, I'm just really, really disappointed. Why is my large group not bigger? And I remember, I'll never forget what Michael said. He said, you know, I can relate to that. And he said, if I'm being honest, he said, I think Jesus loves me too much to give me a big large group right now. And I remember like hating him in that moment, but being deeply ministered to. That Jesus loves me too much to give me the thing. He loves you too much to give you the thing that is going to destroy you. He, he loves you enough and he loves me enough to disappoint, to disappoint us. And so the first question is, where does Jesus need to disappoint you? Where does Jesus need to not give you that thing you so desperately want him to give you so that your hope will be in him, not in what he can do for you? So first, while he waits, but then, thankfully, he doesn't leave us there. If he left us there, I don't think any of us would... (laughs) Would any of us be Christians? I mean, if he left us there, what would we do? But he doesn't leave us there because he also weeps. So why does he weep? And this is where the story gets interesting. Jesus finally shows up. He waits. He shows up four days after Lazarus is dead. And if you've ever been to... I mean, I assume most of us in this room have been to a funeral... And one of the hardest things to me about funerals is, if, especially if you go to the visitation, is what in the world are you going to say? Jesus has to be thinking, what in the world am I going to say? Like I remember a few years ago, my, one of my um, fraternity brothers in college, his dad suddenly died of a heart attack. And I knew I needed to go to the visitation. It was in Boiling Springs, South Carolina. So I remember driving up in my car and, and getting into the visitation in the funeral home and doing that thing where I got in line to wait to get around to see my friend. I hadn't seen my friend in probably three or four years, and I just kept thinking, what in the world am I going to say? Is there anything that I can say that's going to be helpful? What in the world can I say that's going to take his pain away? He had no idea his dad was going to die. What, what in the world can I possibly say? And I remember making my way around the room, nervously trying to think of what in the world am I going to say. And then I remember when I got to him, we, he, our eyes met, and he burst into tears, and we hugged what felt like a solid five minutes, and I just said, I'm sorry. And that's why I love what Jesus does with Mary. And we read that verse, Jesus wept. One commentator says it would be way better to say Jesus burst into tears at the sadness of the scene. And the question is, is what kind of tears is Jesus crying? And we know he, he's not crying sentimental tears. He's not, he hasn't been drinking wine and listening to Bon Iver, and he's just in a sentimental mood. He's not crying regret, tears of regret. It's not the end of Schindler's List, where it's like, if I had done this, so, much, so, many, more, so many more lives would have been saved. He's not crying sentimental tears or tears of regret. So what kind of tears is he, is he crying? And I think there are a couple. One is, there are three kinds of tears he's crying. One is he's crying at death. 
you know, if we got into uh, the way that the, the original language phrases some of these things, it's interesting. One pastor brings out that when it says he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled, that part of that was used for, the, for horses that would get really startled, almost like an angry kind of being startled. And it applies, John uses that of Jesus because Jesus gets angry at death. Death is not a natural part of the order. Death is this intrusion on how life should be, and Jesus has come to undo it. And so he's crying these tears of rage at death itself, but it's more than death. He's crying at his friend's death. He's crying that his friend has died. Jesus isn't indifferent to your suffering. Jesus isn't indifferent to our suffering. I think sometimes we imagine that Jesus, I don't know if you watched Seinfeld growing up, but the soup Nazi episode. Sometimes I think we imagine Jesus like the soup Nazi. If you remember the soup Nazi, you had to get into his restaurant, and, and if you didn't move through line in just the right way, he would say, no soup for you, and kick you out of his store. And I think sometimes we think Jesus in this robotic way is indifferent somehow to our suffering, I remember using this illustration one time at, um, in, at Georgia Southern, and a student had taken notes, and all he wrote down was, Jesus is not the soup Nazi. And that was one of my greatest uh, preaching failure moments, I thought. But the reality is that Jesus is not indifferent to your tears. That he's not indifferent to the things that you are facing or have faced, he's not indifferent to your sadness. He sees Mary and he's moved to tears of love. But then this other interesting turn happens is you can't read John 11 and not get a sense that Jesus has to be thinking of his own death. From the tomb and the cave to if we had gone down to what Caiaphas says later in the passage, that isn't it better to give up one man for the people that the people might not suffer? Jesus has to be thinking of the death that he is about to, to go, that Lazarus might be raised. The death that he's about to face, that you and I might have the hope of resurrection and the hope of the forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. Jesus doesn't just make us wait. He also weeps with us. He also weeps with us, my favorite. This is why my favorite scene in all of Narnia is the scene uh, in uh, the Magician's Nephew, where Diggory. If you remember the story, Diggory, his mom is dying, and all he wants Aslan to come do is to save his mom. And the book kind of builds to the scene at the end, where finally Aslan shows up to Diggory's mom's deathbed, and here's how the scene goes. Diggory says, "But please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother?" Up until then, he'd been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. But now in his despair, he looked up at its face, and what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. A few years ago, I remember meeting a friend in Starbucks in the Vista, and I was processing with him my dad's story. My dad um, left our family when I was about 12 uh, through an addiction to crack cocaine. And a lot of my life has been spent trying to process this. And so I was meeting with this friend, and we were talking about it. And in the middle of the Starbucks, he said something that no one had ever said to me before. He said, Sammy, what we have to do, if you're ever going to be whole, if you're ever going to have a whole heart as an adult, We've got to go back and take adult Sammy by the hand back to 12-year-old Sammy and look him in the face and say, Sammy, Dad's not coming home. And like I burst into tears in the Starbucks. 
And I remember thinking, it was one of those thoughts where it was as if the Lord said, yes, and I want to go with you and just weep with you there. And the question for you this morning is, where does Jesus want to take you by the hand to one of the most painful places in your life and not say anything and not give you the truth that is so important, but simply weep with you there? And to bring the kind of healing that says, I'm with you and I'm for you and I know what this is like and I love you and let's just cry together. That's why I love one guy said it like this. He said, you know, sometimes we sing amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? But we can all, yes, amen. But we can also sing amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would cry with me? Where does Jesus want to take you by the hand and simply weep with you? That's also not where it ends, because then he does something else. Why he wakes Lazarus from the dead, and this is the last thing I want to look at together. I love the way that one guy says this. He says, most of us go to the grave and then cry, but Jesus cries and then goes to the grave because he knows he's about to do something. But what I want to really focus on is I think my whole life, I've read these kinds of passages, these miracle passages, and I've really thought the point of it really is that Jesus is kind of showing up and saying, hey, look at my power, believe in me. But I really think that's certainly part of it. Part of it, part of what Jesus says, this is going to be for the glory, this is going to be for the glory of God. This is going to be, this is not going to be the end. This is going to be something beautiful that's going to happen that they might believe in me. But there's a part of this too that I want you to see as a foretaste of what Jesus has come to do. That, that Jesus' miracles, especially raising Lazarus from the dead, is a foretaste that Jesus, in the words of Tolkien, has come to make all the sad things come untrue. Uh, it's like, you know, I, I'm, I love food and I love you know, spending too much money on food sometimes. And I love when we go to the celebratory dinner and we are in the mood to order wine and I order the wine. And I love if it's in a nice restaurant, how the waiter will bring the wine out and let me sample it. You know, so it pours a little bit in my glass and I like, I swirl around and like pretend like I'm never at my fakest when I'm sampling the wine. Or I'm like, ah, oh, yes, sir. We will take that bottle of your fine wine um, but the point of why they do that is they're giving you a, a foretaste, right? I mean, the whole reason that they do that is they're giving you a foretaste to make sure that, you, you know, that you're looking forward to what's in that bottle. Um, Jesus, in this with Lazarus, is giving us a foretaste of what he has come to do. That he really has come to undo death. Not just undo sin, but undo death and raise us. There's a day, there's a day coming for you and for me where he's going to stand over our graves and say, Sammy, come out. John, come out. David, come out. Laura, come out. Elizabeth, come out. He's going to stand and he's going to bring us to this life that will be with him forever, this physical embodied life with him. And I love this image of him unwrapping Lazarus with, of the grave clothes. I just celebrated a birthday and I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that I got some great gifts, but this is the gift that you and I need. This image of what Jesus comes to do in our lives to give us this hope of resurrection, of life with him forever. So the question is, where does Jesus need to disappoint you? Where does Jesus need to weep with you? Where does he want to weep with you? And where does he want to bring his hope into that place too that you might look forward to life with him forever? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you love us this way, um, that you do love us enough to disappoint us. You love us enough to weep with us. You love us enough to give us hope of resurrection and life with you forever. Would you infuse 
um, this kind of love in our community today, that we might do this with each other. And would you stand with us and remind us today that you love us, you're for us, and you're with us. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.